Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and my guest today is Amanda Gottbold. Amanda is a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California in the Department of Earth Sciences, where she researches conservation paleoecology. Before joining the department at USC, she was an undergraduate at the University of Calgary, where she earned a bachelor's in geology. In this episode, Amanda and I discuss her academic journey as a non-traditional student, her childhood and experience with homelessness and learning resilience, her work and research, and work she is heavily involved with at the Paleo Society, working to make academia a more welcoming environment through Paleo Connect. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hello, thank you for uh, having me. I wanted to start with a little bit about the research that you're doing as a student. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so I am interested in the biologic and environmental uh, controls on community membership within coral reefs um, back through time, so ancient coral reefs. So if we think about species as like a unit, I'm curious as to how that unit changes through time. Are there important um, ecologic uh, relationships that carry through time? And this all kind of leads me to asking kind of bigger questions like what is a healthy ecosystem? What does that mean? (laughs) Um, And then on top of all that, what makes one community more resilient than another community? Um, So I'm I'm really just interested in community dynamics within reefs uh, through time. Wow, awesome. And so I guess like a, a really common example of like a modern relationship I guess would be something like um an anemone and like a clownfish living in it it's it's a bad example because I assume that anemone fossil record is pretty bad but um so like how all these organisms are interacting on a reef and how like today we think about um if we pull organisms away by fishing or by extinction it changes the entire community so is that kind of like what you're doing back in time Exactly. I like to think about it like a a community or an ecosystem is like baking a cake. The cake is the ecosystem and I'm trying to figure out what ingredients are really important. The ingredients are being the species themselves. So I'm really curious as to like if if are, are there specific ingredients that are essential for a community to function? Um is it just you can kind of work with anything in the kitchen at that time? Um or, you know, is, is it somewhere in between? So I'm I'm really curious about the kind of recipe, I guess, of a community and um, and how important that is to the, to the whole. Awesome. And are, what are you finding? Are you finding that there are some really specific things, really specific ingredients? Yeah, so, uh, so far in my PhD, I've actually been focusing on the how. So... Right now, my mindset is really on how do I collect this data from the rock record? So um, when I was doing my undergrad and when I did my master's as well, I was kind of rushing in. You know, when I first started doing research, I was like, I want to answer. <laughs> I want to cure the science of paleont- or the, uh, cure the cancer of paleontology. I just want to, you know, I want to get in there and I want to, you know, answer the big questions as fast as I can. And, and so I was gung-ho um, 
And then I kind of hit a wall where I realized like, okay, Amanda, the thinking of the questions are, are great. That's the fun part. But the real vital part is actually thinking about and, and concentrating on the how. And so I actually took a modern choral ecology course um, in Bermuda, which was a really intensive field course um, where I got to practice like modern um, coral like ecological methods on modern coral reefs and so I kind of started thinking about okay how do I use what I learned in that course on modern methods field methods and how do I combine that with what I know with um, kind of paleontological methods um, so I've been trying to create this kind of hybrid uh, methodology that allows me to collect a little bit more data from from the field that will allow me to answer some more of these ecological questions in, in the rock record. Um, and so my, my main focus hasn't been on the results yet. Uh, it's been on data collection and how exactly uh, to collect that data so that I can get to those questions. <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's um, really funny that you mentioned this because I have a, a few very vivid memories of you coming into USC. Um, I think when you first started and you were like, I'm going to work on refugia and like, this is how it's going to go. And I mean, that's the, it's a fun part about new students and, and people who just wrapped up undergrad is that you're really excited about the questions. You used methods that someone else planned for you, usually as an undergraduate. And then you're coming in, you're coming in hot a lot of times here, PhD, and you're like, no problem. We're going to do all of this. I mean, I definitely did this too. And then you start doing it and you're like, whoa, I have some methods to develop. So it's really fun to see the progression of that. Absolutely. I would <laughs> absolutely. I would say that. Um, and then also, I think it's good to start questioning methodology in general. I think I think a lot of the time we can either be uh, kind of highly guided by our lab group in what methodology we choose, which can and, and, and there's no standard methods in paleontology, right? It is really lab based. And I think that's kind of what drives biologists a little crazy about paleontology is just um, you know, there's no kind of standard methodology that is used across the board. It really is about who your mentors are, what lab you come from, what what methods they've developed, what machines they have, what, you know, and so it, it can really depend depend. And so I really, and because my, my supervisor is quite hands off, um, I think that really allowed me and gave me the space to be like, wait, what methods? Why am I using these methods? Should I be using these methods? <laughs> How old are these methods? <laughs> and so, um, and so because I started really questioning them, I think I really dove in the deep end of methodology and started kind of tearing it apart and, and thinking critically about each step. And, um, and then through other, um, so one, one piece of advice that I actually received from, uh, um, Dr. Wolfgang Kiesling, um, he's at FAU in Germany. Um, he said, just do everything with intention. So, you know, every decision you make, just think about why you're making that decision. And when I started looking into methodology, I'm like, okay, like do it with intention. Why are you choosing this methodology from the start? Not like when you're doing statistics, not at the end when you have data, like every single step of the way, why did you pick that rock? Why did you pick the size of rock, you know? 
-hmm. Yeah, those are super hard learned lessons sometimes, I think, because you come in and you want to get started, like the data collection, like at least for me, sample and data collection, like the fun part. So you're like coming in and you're like, let's do as much as I can. But you can get to a point where you're like, "Uh uh-oh, like I wasn't really questioning like why exactly I was doing things this way. And then you can start to get problems. So while it's much harder, I think, to set up your methods really well and be really intentional about them in the beginning I think in the end it leads for like much better science and science that you can share then you can be like okay I trialed and aired like a lot of these research methods now I'm going to test them and then I'm going to publish this and then I'm going to save some people a lot of time yeah and that's just it I I you know it it did kind of scare me when I, I'm reaching kind of my fourth year and I'm like, wow, I have no results. Um, and I, I went through all of these doors trying to figure out what works best. Um, and a lot of those doors didn't work. And so you kind of start to get panicked a little bit when you see other people publishing and having all this data and you're kind of sitting back being like, oh, but I just really want to make sure that at this stage I'm developing methodologies and patterns that I can carry through my career. Um, And so at least that's kind of been my my motivation and my intention is just these are going to be things that I carry with me throughout my entire career. So I really want to make sure that I've tried everything. I think your PhD is a time to explore. It's a time to explore what you want to do. It's a time to explore the skill sets and the, and the methodologies that you need to, to accomplish those things. So I have kind of settled down and been like, okay, Amanda, it's okay. Like, because at the end of this, you will feel super confident about what you do get out of this and you your your data is going to be solid you know and and that's really what I'll be proud about at the end um is is knowing and having that security that like I thought this through from day day one to to now um but yeah there was a lot of methodologies that did not work and I had to learn the hard way because it's not like we talk amongst the community about all the things that didn't work or about all the little exceptions or things that you should focus on or shouldn't focus on or why it would or wouldn't work these are trades that uh, trade secrets that belong to certain labs so unless you're unless you're in that club you won't know those kind of pitfalls and and kind of false doors that exist and so what I really am looking forward to is once I am pretty solid about my methodology I'm gonna put it out there I'm just gonna I'm gonna make it free and available of like hey these are the doors I went down these are the paths I I took don't go down here or if you do be aware (laughs) of of the potentials um and and then also just you know talking about how much time you should spend before you kind of turn back um so you know just talking about how to navigate that um a little bit more so i I, i'm i'm really looking forward to just putting all my stuff online all my methodologies all my things i actually i um i developed little worksheets for myself um so i'm consistent among samples um so i'm going to publish all those little worksheets uh that i that i made and and just make everything really super available awesome um and i know that your field work has been really impacted by the pandemic. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the fieldwork that you 
planned and have planned. And then I know that even in the last month, you had a, a pretty big wrench thrown in your summer plans. And I think it's just an interesting thing to talk about in your PhD and like what you're doing about it and the role of immigration and visas and those things. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um Okay, so field work is my life. That's, you know, that's where I, I gain all my energy in life. Um, it is my life force uh, doing field work. And so two summers ago, so before the pandemic, um, I went to Australia to look out, look, kind of scout a field site. So to see, you know, it, are there things there that I want to look at? It was a very short trip, um, but it was very informative, and it made it reassured me that everything was there that I wanted to see. Um, that the 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 study was, I had a good idea that it was going to be successful at that site. So, the summer of the pandemic, um, I obviously wasn't able to go. Uh, the world was crazy, uh, so I didn't even try. I just said, you know what. We're gonna just stay indoors and, and quarantine and and try to to manage this. Um, so you know, I think I was pretty okay with that because uh, I was like, okay, you know, we I think we all thought, oh, you know, a couple months, this will kind of settle down. You know, next summer I you know I have this, so don't worry too much. Uh, so yeah, last summer I just kind of let it slide by, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna survive this summer. Uh, but what that meant is that last summer I was only going to go for two months and then I was going to go for two months this summer or even longer, uh, because it was supposed to be, it's, it's going to take me a long time to collect this, this data. I'm doing a really, really extensive field area. Um, so it's, it's going to be a really, really, um, big job. So I was going to kind of span the time. So I wasn't there for such a big chunk of time. Uh, but this summer came around, uh, and I was like, okay, I guess I'll have to be in the field for four months. Uh, and this is four months of camping in, in the outback of Australia. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm, I love, I love being alone and in the wild. So this is, this is my jam. I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Uh, so we applied. And so, um, we had, so me and my field partner, my field partner was going to be my, my partner in real life. Uh, and so we applied for visas. Um, and, you know, that's the usual process of things. So I was like, okay, I'm used to this, you know, click the buttons, fill out the forms, you're okay. And then, then time passed and it was like, okay, well now we have to send in a d deferral or we have to send in, uh, what was it called? Um, it was a form to kind of plead our case of why we should come to Australia. Um, so we sent in that form. Uh, we described what we'll be doing. You know, we at that time were, were fully vaccinated. We were going to be in the middle of nowhere, Australia, for four months, not interacting with anybody. Uh, we were just going to be viewing rocks and, and kind of to ourselves. So we thought, okay, we're not really going to be impacting uh, very many, you know, people. We're not going to be, you know, the, the, the biggest thing will be is getting gas and getting food. Um, so we, I got forms from my supervisor. I got forms from, you know, this person, that person. I, uh, we pleaded our case and we got still denied. Um, and, 
you know, at the, on one side, I'm super bummed, uh, but on the other side, I'm like, they're just trying to protect themselves, and, you know, the p pandemic's not over. It's still going strong in a lot of places, and so I understand the, you know, the, the want to protect your country and protect your citizens, so I understood, um, but being two, two years out of the, two field seasons out of field work definitely has, has drained me personally just because I do really love the field um so kind of that that really uh, kind of sucked but in terms of research so like you said I did come into USC very like gung-ho very like I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do all these things so I did collect a lot of samples uh for other projects that I was gonna do originally before I kind of settled onto my major project so I had gone to Austria before that and collected basically the entire mountain uh <laughs> and shipped it back. Uh, so I had a lot of samples that I was sitting on. Um, I had shifted all my gear, you know, all my, you know, I've sh I had shifted to my major project. Um, and so I was kind of leaving those samples for like a rainy day. But turns out that the rainy day came and that was the pandemic. So now I'm kind of going back and going through those samples. Um, it wasn't, you know, it's not the grand project that I had developed with other collaborators, but it is It is kind of, I'm making it work. And um, just kind of, um, I'm using this as like, okay, it's just a continuation of trying to find the methods and and trying to see what I can actually if I use these methods, what can I actually see? And so I'm just using these samples as kind of um, a test run um, with full intentions of still doing that major project. So next summer, <laughs> hopefully I'll uh, probably have to go into the field for like five or six months. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's it's um yeah, it's a great, I guess, example of why we do a major and minor project. I mean, I don't I guess I don't have that good of a feel of how common that process is. But obviously, like I came from the same department and I also did a major and minor. And that minor is exactly like it has exactly this function that like your major project you know things fail for various reasons like part of my major project didn't happen because the data was weird and like you know that was like four or five years ago now and I'm only just like oh I think actually I can do something with this data but I did not need to hinge my whole PhD on that and so that's a great function of the project um I was also I had I had like one thing to add about the immigration stuff which is like I um like Australia had very few COVID cases per capita compared to the U.S., which is why their border is effectively closed um, to a lot of places that do have a lot of COVID cases, including the U.S. Um, and I, I just remember that like there was a really funny moment where I was on a Zoom call like eight months ago or something with like um, scientists from like the US and like Kiwi scientists, Australian scientists. And when we were in lockdown, we were like fully in lockdown. Like I could only go to the grocery store. We had to stay in our little area. Like we didn't do anything. And it was like very well enforced and like no one was going to work with doctors. Like it was very, you know, very well regulated. And I was on this Zoom call with like a bunch of scientists and this woman asked like, oh, but you guys could still, like, collect data during lockdown, right? Like, you could go do field work. And we were like, no, 
no, no, no, no, no, no, no, no, no, no. So I, it's like this perspective difference can be so different in the, in like the various countries from the pandemic, and I have just found that really interesting. And and like the effect on people's careers is not. I mean, and and of course now where like I'm able to do whatever I want since like last June being in New Zealand and yeah, people's careers have just had really different effects from this pandemic and Yeah. I I absolutely agree. I, I think I I feel very fortunate, um, in the sense that I did collect a lot. Like you said, I, I kind of went in um and was was like, I wanna get started, I wanna get my hand on some rocks. So I did and I just collected a bunch of stuff. Um, and I, I'm really lucky that I, I did that. Um, and so for me, at least I'll be able to continue continue kind of that progress. It might not be the progress that I was envisioning, envisioning. it might not be kind of the project I was, I was envisioning, but it'll be progress. And so I think for me, I, I feel very fortunate in that, um, whereas it, you know, a lot of first years, you know, just going into their PhD, I really feel so strong for them because they, you know, are just figuring out what they want to do. Uh, they aren't able to kind of jump into the field, get, get that stuff done and collected and get, get started as well as the community. I mean, they've been really disconnected from, from the, the thing that kept me together when I first moved to, you know, Los Angeles and, and started in the department was the department. <laughs> um, everything else was really chaotic moving to a new place, uh, can be really scary. And, and, you know, especially if you're doing it during a pandemic, uh, I can, I can't even imagine. Um, but yeah, this having at least the constant of being like your lab mates, the people, your instructors, uh, having that kind of contact, uh, is really important. And so I can, I, I've been really trying, uh, I, I just really hope that, first years give themselves a, a little bit of a break, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, <laughs> the panic and the anxiety that they must feel. Um, I hope that they are self, you know, show themselves some self-compassion. Yeah, yeah, which is always important in grad school. Okay, so before you were at USC, you were at the University of Calgary. Um, so it sounds like if we just say it like that, it sounds like a very linear career path, um, nothing to see here. Um, but I know that you had a really different undergraduate experience than a lot of people who end up in PhD programs. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I just start at the beginning, though? Because I think the whole the whole journey is important, I, I think. Um. So yeah, I I grew up with a learning disability, um, and when I when I was a really s small child, so I got diagnosed when I was maybe six years old, uh, maybe even earlier than that. Um, and when I first got diagnosed, um, conversations around learning disabilities were occurring. They were using the terminology learning disability. Um, they were starting to try programs and, and you know, uh, to, to help, uh, but it was all so new. So 
you know, not a lot of people had training um, in what a learning disability is, or we didn't have a full understanding of, of what that meant. And so there was a lot of what I would now consider very archaic um, ways in which we tried to help people with learning disabilities. Um, for example, they would isolate me from peers because they didn't want me to bother them. And they also thought that distra distractibility was a huge uh, you know, reason for learning disabilities. Um, it was, a, it was a, a time when we really blamed the individual and not the system for a learning disability. So it was because the, the child wasn't concentrating enough. It was because they were lacked focus, lacked motivation, um, and all these different, you know, these are the terminology. This is the wording that would be used. Um, and so a lot of the the ways that they tried to help was to focus you. And so I would legit have blinders on my desk. I would have these kind of cardboard poster things where I could only see the front of the classroom um, because that, you know, of course, it was the walls that were really distracting, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I would, and I would work from, you know, closets, you know, the coat closet, wow. um, uh, you know, other things like that, that were really isolating and, and really, it felt very like like punishment. So I felt like I was being punished for something that I couldn't really control. Um, and then it became this negative kind of aspect of my life. You know, I start to I started to kind of believe that there was something wrong with me. I started to believe that I was stupid or different. Um, I believed that I needed all this help to even you know learn anything. Uh, and so I, I really started to kind of lose that confidence in, in my ability to learn. Despite all of that, though, I really did love to learn. I, I know that in, on every report card, and I had to keep all my report cards because I had to get tested every six years, these tests cost upward of $1,000. So let's just keep that in mind for accessibility. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I had to keep all my report cards. So sometimes I look back at, you know, little Amanda's uh, journey and uh, on every report card, it's always like, Amanda tries super hard. She loves learning and she's trying. Um, but of course, you know, regardless of me loving to learn, um, this learning disability really, you know, hampered my ability to interact at school, learn in a constructive way, have confidence. Uh, and so I really didn't like school. I remember I used to pretend that I was sick almost every day so that my mom would have to pick me up so that I wouldn't have to be at school. Um, I feel bad, really bad for my mom now because she took so many days off because uh, I would just constantly be uh, quote unquote sick. <laughs> uh, and. Um, on top of all that, I think what we don't realize is that there's a lot of extra assignments that they would give kids with learning disabilities. So they would have learning, 
kids with learning disabilities would have not only their homework, but extra assignments. So how intuitive is that? So a kid is struggling and you give them extra work. Uh, so again, it's that idea of punishment, that idea of like, oh, just work harder, do more, catch up. Um, anyway, so that was my relationship with school all throughout elementary uh, and junior high. Um, I took myself off of the program in high school because I no longer wanted to be different. I no longer wanted to be separated from my peers to do tests and to do, you know, other things. So I took myself off of it. I was like, okay, if I'm going to struggle, I might as well struggle and be viewed as normal. <laughs> and so, um, no one knew, none of my friends knew. Um, it was, yeah, yeah, I just kind of kept that to myself. None of my instructors knew. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't ask for anything. Um, and I just, I kind of got through high school. Um, not very well, not with great grades, not very successfully, but I got through. By the time I graduated high school, I was done. I was like, no one, I, I don't want to hear I can't do things anymore. I don't want to feel like I can't do things anymore. I am done with, with, with education. And I worked for two years. I just kind of did me, you know, I, I figured out what I loved. I kind of grew into myself, you know, kind of figuring out who I was and what I liked, disliked, away from kind of being a, a teenager, you know, um, in school. Uh, but then I always kind of came back to this, okay, like, am I not doing school because I don't like it? Or am I not doing school or going to school because I feel like I can't do it? And there is a big distinction. And I figured out that it was because of what people were saying about me, not because of what I actually wanted. And I knew I really wanted to go to school. I loved learning. I, I love learning. Um... So I took a chance, I upgraded classes, I paid for them with my own money, and I just took upgrading high school classes, I applied to university, I got in, but not into a program, my grades were not good enough, I got into open studies, uh, so I didn't have a major, um, and <laughs> I went from two years out of high school and not really understanding how I learn, uh, you know, and that was where I was in my first year of university. I was two years out of high school and I hadn't, yeah, I still was like, okay, I have a learning disability. Now what? <laughs> what does that mean? So I really struggled my first two years and I got a letter or an email from the university saying, Amanda, you know, you're falling behind. Uh, before you get any closer to academic probation, you, you should check out the Learning Disability Center, Resource Center. And I said, uh, there's a Learning Disability Resource Center? I was out, there's a whole center? <laughs> I, like I told you before, I was absolutely amazed that this existed. And I immediately went there and I booked an appointment. And I remember, and I, I've told you this before, but I met with my first counselor and I was so excited. I was like, okay, these people know what they're doing. They obviously must have credentials. <laughs> um, you know, they'll be able to tell me what's going on with my mind and how, how, how I can work uh, with my learning disability. Um, 
And the first counselor that I met with, uh, she was like, what do you want to do? And I said, science. I always really love science. And she looked at me kind of like I was a five-year-old saying I wanted to be a dinosaur when I grew up. She was like, oh, that's cute, but really? <laughs> She's like, but really, what do you want to do? And I said, science. And she's just like, oh, are you sure you don't want to aim just like a little lower? Just like, just something a little easier, you know? She's like, do you want to just go into like the arts or something? And I said, you're really insulting everybody in the arts program because I am not artistic or <laughs> like that's, you know, you're insulting so many people right now, um, including me. Um, and so I, I made a, an appointment with a different counselor the next day. And uh, she was really supportive. She's like, okay, here are the, here are the resources that I have. Here's, here's everything that we can offer you. And she didn't push. She said, you know what? Tr try things out. See if they work for you. And if they do, that's great. We can work with that. If they don't, we can try something new. So don't stress out too much. And I remember the first thing that I looked at was this recording pen. So this pen records your lectures. And it's a really smart pen. Um, the marks you make on the paper, if you were to tap on that with the pen, it would replay whatever was said during when you made that mark on the paper. So it was really cool. Um, and that worked tremendously. That was like my first shot. And it was it was everything. I started to do really, really well um, in, in terms of writing my notes and preparing for lectures and, 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 and things like that. Um, and so that was half of the journey. Half of the journey was figuring out what resources that I, that I needed. So extra time uh, was obviously essential. This pen was really essential. So I was starting to get these tools that were really helping me uh, figure out how I learn and how my brain works. Uh, and, and that was incredible. But what really added the extra, you know, lifted me even higher to, to reach my full potential was really uh, when I decided that um, I wanted to be a paleontologist uh, and... I, so I looked out, I saw, um, I looked for a paleontologist at U Calgary, and we only had two. One was on maternity leave, and the other one was a micropaleontologist. And I was kind of like, ooh, do I really want to talk to a micropaleontologist? Like, what do they study? Like, ants? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I really didn't know what a micropaleontologist was. And so I remember booking an appointment with him. I went in. I was that same person that you kind of met on the first day of my PhD. I was all bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready for action, you know, put me in coach. <laughs> I got this. And um, I remember him, like, kind of looking at my – he looked at my um, – report card, he looked at my scores, he, you know, and, and I, you know, at that point, I was still struggling, I was, I was getting better, but I was still struggling. Um, and so I came to him with not very much to like that on paper looked like I had much to offer, but I had, I had full, full positive vibes, <laughs> which can go a long way. And so he's like, okay, Amanda, um, you know, I know that you are not even in the geology department. Uh, but if you are, you know, if you're willing, if you're really interested, take my third year paleontology course. Uh, and let's see how you do. 
And I can't tell you how honored I was of that interaction because he did not lower expectations even when knowing I had a learning disability, seeing my resume. He did not go, okay, well, in a few years, when you, you know, maybe when you get into the program, you know, we'll talk again. He's like, no, right now, right here, make a decision. Go into my class, work your butt off, and, and let's see what you can do. And that was the first time that people didn't lower their expectations for me. And it really made me step up. I'm like, okay, let's do this, Amanda. This is what you've been waiting for. And so I worked my butt off with all these brand new toys and tools that I had, and I got a B plus in that class. And uh, and then he was like, Amanda, do you want to come work in my lab? Do you want to, you know, see, see if you like research? And I was like, absolutely. I'll do anything, you know. <laughs> you want me to mop floors? I'll mop floors. You want me to, you know, clean microscopes? I'll do that too. Like, <laughs> um, he's like, no, actual science. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, and so I started by like picking forums and conodonts. Uh, and, you know, we kind of built a working relationship. And from there, he was like, do you want to do an undergraduate thesis? And I was like, heck yes, please. And uh, so we built a really strong working relationship. And he really became a very important, very vital mentor in my life. And I turned from being on academic probation to being a full A student by the time I graduated. And I graduated with a 3.7 GPA. And I really was able to turn things around. And that's because I had somebody that believed in me, but challenged me, did not lower expectations, continuously challenged me and continuously believed in me. And that gained, and then I gained that confidence back. And with the tools and confidence, well, let's just say I'm unstoppable now. <laughs> I love that story so much because it like, it touches on so many things that I feel like the academic community is like trying to grapple with like that you can be super smart and learn a little bit differently than a lot of people and it can be really hard for you to access like information and opportunities because of that and like something as simple as like a slightly different tool like a pen recording the lectures like made this massive difference and and like something I like thinking about a lot is that like you know, I, I've noticed that people have really different like memories, like like some of my friends like seem to not be able to remember like, you know, 20 percent of what I do about the same situation. But then I have like my new coworker has like an almost like photographic memory with like sound like she can like regurgitate what someone else has said. And it's like so there's this huge span in like differences in that kind of way. And that's not just, you know, memory. That's like everything. Right. Like how we learn and I guess like school is so tailored to this one way that it can be really like you really have to advocate for yourself like you had to go you had to tell the first lady that you met with like no no this lady doesn't know what she's talking about let me try someone else <laughs> like you know you had to like advocate for yourself you had to like learn how you learn and how you learn differently and like what works for you and then you also had to have a mentor that was like totally believing in you and not, I don't know just a great story I think. Yeah, and I think, well, thank you so much. And um, I really, I, I do, I'm very passionate about telling that story because um, you're right. I think that um, there's a lot of like stigma that still, that still surrounds learning disabilities, um, you know, today. Um, and I experience them uh, a lot. Um, but 
what I think is really interesting is some of the qualities that I've gained through having a learning disability has actually made me a better scientist. And um, because, for example, I, I have always had to be independent in my learning and I've always had to be really independent in, 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 in doing things in general. No one was going to encourage me because everybody didn't expect me to do anything. So uh, if I wanted, I could have just sat there and people would have been like, oh, you're sitting there. Great job. You know, um, so in that way, I had to learn how to motivate myself. I had to learn how to find resources by myself help myself uh, and so I'm really independent now and um, I think that's a quality that I can contribute to to having that experience growing up and uh, so I think a lot of these qualities that I have that people really say hey Amanda I really you know you're really good at this I'm like okay I'm good at that because of these thing this thing this experience that would you would actually attribute to negative things <laughs> Yeah, it's great. And and yeah, and it's like um yeah, I think science has this like reputation for like people basically needing to be like geniuses to like contribute. But like at the end of the day, it's the things we were talking about a few minutes ago, like data collection, like setting up a good method, the data collection, you know, that part any anyone can do, you know? Anyone can collect the data. Anyone can like analyze the data once they're taught. And I guess I don't know, I always think about it like the movie Ratatouille where like uh, a cook can be anyone like a scientist can be anyone you just have to like use the tools of science and like yeah you just have to claw your way into the scientific training program absolutely absolutely I, I fully believe that I can't tell you how many times people told me I wasn't going to do anything with my life uh, including the dean of science um, at UCalgary at the time who told me that I wasn't going to amount to anything <laughs> um so, I mean, people were really forward about my, you know, having a learning disability. And so, uh, and if anything, that made me just a little bit more, lit, little, little bit more of a fire. I was like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. We'll see about that. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, this one's for them. No. <laughs> uh, this one goes out to all of Amanda's haters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, no, it was, it was, um, yeah, and I think that that also, you know, gave me some tough skin and, and um, it had it gave me a lot of, like, I felt like I had to prove a lot and to others, but then I realized that nah, I just have to prove things to myself, like, I'm all that matters, you know, <laughs> so um, at the end of the day, as long as I'm proud of myself, um, then doesn't matter. <laughs> So I know that there's one other thing that I feel like really sets you apart from, um, I don't know, a, a quote unquote like linear education pathway, um, which is you experienced like real a lot of hardship when you were a kid. You experienced homelessness. And I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit about also the way that that impacts people's educational journeys and yours. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Um you know, another stereotype that I kind of uh, try and advocate, you know, advocate against is um, the idea, the stigmas around at-risk youth, um, because I would, as I, I would identify as somebody who 
was an at-risk youth growing up. Uh, my home life uh, growing up was not safe at home. So uh, to avoid that danger that existed for me, I chose to uh, live outside the house. So that meant uh, when I got off school, uh, my first priority was not homework. <laughs> it was, where was I gonna sleep that night? Uh, and I had a, a really strong group of friends at that time. They didn't know what was going on at home. Uh, I was very secretive about that. Um, because the truth is, is that if you were to watch any movie, and if if you were to watch any movie that had any sort of social services in that movie, you would also be terrified of social services. You just see these really sad scenes of kids in back of cop cars driving away and everyone's crying. So I did not want to be ripped away from my family. I loved, I love my mom, you know, I, um, my mom, you know, was a single mom growing up, and for for a lot of my life, I did have a you know a, a stepdad as well. And um, <clears throat> but for a lot of the time, it was me and my mom, and so I really was attached to her. And I think that's another thing that people don't really realize with at-risk youth or children who are experienced domestic violence is that they're really they love their family. I mean, who doesn't love their family uh, despite anything that's going on? And they're really loyal. And so, you know, my mom was not the abuser. My mom was also in a in a hard situation. Uh, so I was, I was like, I'm not going to leave my mom in this situation alone. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I just, I chose to protect myself though and, and, and try and live as much as I could, um, outside of the house. And so I had a, like I said, I had a really strong group of women who, um, I hung out with and, you know, we would find a place to crash together. So a lot of the time that was parties. So trying to find a party to, to kind of crash in, uh, I did not drink or, or do drugs. I, you know, I, I had enough addicts in, in my family that I wanted to stay away from that. Um, but yeah, so it's either, you know, sleep in kind of the closet of, of, of somebody, some stranger's house, uh, sleep on a park bench, sleep in a garage, sleep in abandoned buildings or buildings that were just being made. Um, so, you know, wherever you can really find some shelter. And it was in Calgary, in, in Canada. I was about to say, it's really cold. It was in Canada. I remember this one time uh, we would be sleeping on, on uh, concrete fl floors and uh, we would kind of do this thing where we would huddle together like penguins, but some people would kind of sleep on top of the pile and then we would kind of shimmy around to kind of try and share the, the, the break from the, the ground. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. And so um, I just like to remind people that, you know, uh, I still made it to school every day. I was never late. I, you know, didn't, ne I never skipped class. Um, and I kept that really consistent, even though my life was not consistent. Uh, homework was done on the bus or wherever I could kind of have that space to do it. Um, but it was not a priority. The first priority was, you know, shelter, food food, <laughs> uh, staying, you know, uh, you know, having fresh, clean clothes, uh, things like that. So, um, but 
the stereotypes that surround at-risk youth um, were, you know, would be that I didn't like school, that, you know, I was choosing, you know, to do poorly in school, or I was choosing not to care, or, you know, or that I was choosing to party and drink and, and do all these things, uh, to, you know, in, instead of school. Uh, but that wasn't the case, actually. School was something I was trying my hardest at, but it just, there wasn't a lot of space. <laughs> to do that. Um, so I am really passionate about mentoring at-risk youth. Um, I'm, I'm really passionate about not, again, lowering the expectations for them because they're, you know, they're capable. And, and, and to tell you the truth, they are strong. They are strong, resilient people that really uh, deserve, uh, you know, a lot of respect and um, admiration because they, they are, they're, they're really um, overcoming so much uh, to even be present in, in life today. So, um, yeah, I think that's one thing that we, we take for granted is, um, is that not everyone has the space to do homework and do schoolwork or to even think about schoolwork. So on top of having a learning disability, that was definitely also very challenging for sure. But I'm, uh, I, I, I am very, I, that is actually one of my greatest accomplishments when people, when people ask me what my greatest accomplishments are now, you know, I always give the generic, oh, you know, I got this scholarship or I, you know, I did this or I did that, you know, academically, <laughs> I published a paper. Um, but really my greatest accomplishment is getting out of that life uh, and, and kind of choosing to, uh, yeah, choosing to, to leave that life. And it, it's hard when you get into that. I had to leave that community behind and that had become my family. So saying goodbye to them and, and kind of growing distant with them was really, really hard. It was like losing a family. So, um, but that definitely I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciate you just like sharing so candidly about that because I, I mean, like speaking just for myself who grew up in a, a very traditional and stable family unit who you know I, I had every all of my needs met and more and um yeah and and still had a lot of the like normal problems of high school but it's just it's it's hard to imagine I think for some of us what that's like and then yeah to achieve you know every, <laughs> things that a lot of people with like a lot of means um also achieve it's just yeah it's like yeah you can do it you know and like at risk youth can do it um even if they're having this like big hardship so yeah absolutely and I think we need to start adjusting what we consider like what we what our mental picture of somebody that's an at-risk youth are or with somebody with a learning disability is um, because they don't always like you know look act uh, respond the same way um, and for me uh, I feel like um, I did not have that kind of uh, you know, traditional, like in the sense that on TV, when they're like at risk youth, and it's this like very moody teenager who's, you know, being all, you know, uh, you know, rebellious, you know, I, I wasn't like that. And, um, and not, not everyone was in, in that community. So, uh, and, 
And then again, you know, talking about the skills that I gained having a learning disability, the skills that I gained in natic life experience uh, definitely helps me today in this landscape of academia. I have an insanely thick skin um, and I am ex extremely adaptable. Um, and honestly, there's nothing in academia that could happen that could be even close to uh, the kind of experiences I had as a child. So, um, so I, I'm, you know, I, I don't, I'm like, this is, I'm enjoying my peach. I enjoy this. This is good. You know, this is the good stage of my life. So, you know, in that case, it, everything's in perspective for yeah. me, at least. Yeah. Um, um, so I guess next, I wonder if we could talk about, I know you're um, setting up and like doing a lot of community building in the paleontology world with the Paleo Society. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, with the Paleo paleontological society i uh, started a program it's called paleo connect and how that idea originated was that i had a few people from conferences that i met that we got along really well we were interested in the same kind of research and so we kept in contact and so every couple months or every couple weeks we would email each other back and forth talk about the problems we were having with our data sets talking about the resources that we both used um, talking about methodologies talking about research papers conferences that were coming up awards uh, scholarships and it was really it was really enlightening because it allowed me, it opened up, you know, the, the world to me. Um, so I wasn't just looking for things in, in North America. I was really looking at things globally. And that also got me connected to, to other groups that exist around the world. I think sometimes we can become quite isolated within our own country. So um, a lot of the conferences that we go to are just conferences that are primarily our North American community. And then we kind of start to really pair off in that way. And so then you get these pockets of researchers, you know, like the European community, the North American community, the, you know, all these different communities. And, and then they're not really talking with one another. And, and so you, you know, then there's kind of that distance. So what these kind of pen pals or kind of scientists that I was communicating with, it kind of, you know, made me realize that these other pockets exist and it got me connected with them. So I originally wanted, I went to the Paleontological Society and I was like, look, I have this idea. I really want to just get people in contact with one another from around the world. So people in North America can start like communicating with people in China or Africa or South America or vice versa the other way. Um, so they really liked the idea and they were like, okay, Amanda, like roll with it. See what you can do. Here's a few people that you can reach out to for help. And so I kind of developed this team. <clears throat> and so originally we were going to only do a peer mentorship kind of program where we just people sign up and we pair them off and they can kind of communicate via email or whatever they want to do. Um, but just as a way to connect people from around the world and hear different experiences of what graduate school is really like in different places. 
But then we thought that it might be nice to add a video component where people can actually meet on Zoom, you know, or some some kind of online platform where they can converse and talk and see each other and just kind of build that community, international community uh, that way as well. And I really liked that because what can also happen is the Paleontological Society or other societies can become kind of a club in itself where, you know, you you only really know about it because your supervisor's involved or your supervisor's supervisor was involved. And it can become this kind of handed down generational kind of right um, to be a part of this society. And so it can kind of really isolate other other people, other communities uh, around the world. They might not know about it. They might not feel like they know how to get involved with it. Um, and so it can kind of be really hard to interact with a society when you when you don't know a way in like the paleo society when you when you when you were an undergrad and you looked at the geological society or the paleontological society they looked so big right and so daunting you're like i have no idea who these people are i have no idea about the resources that i can you know take from this society or how to communicate or help with this society how to get involved and connected with that community that exists within that society and so you kind of feel like an outsider looking in and then you go to a conference and you realize that everyone had like that's a you know a member of the paleontological society or that's part of the committees of the paleontological society have these badges and then it kind of feels like well wait like how do I become involved how do I how do I communicate with you <laughs> and um I didn't want the society to be that ominous anymore. I wanted it to be very available and very open, very inviting for people to just kind of converse and talk and share ideas, share directions that the society can go in and share the needs of its members. <laughs> so I, you know, we, the, the, people who were helping me develop the Paleo Connect program, we came up with an idea that maybe we can have people, representatives from some of the subcommittees of the Paleo Society, like for example, the DNI committee, um, the developmental committee, the um, uh, student representatives. So some of these are representative from every kind of major committee uh, of the Paleo Society and have them ha come on to this coffee hour so that members could just show up and ask questions or kind of converse with these people that are making these decisions within the society, uh, figure out how they can get involved and just make it a little bit more accessible, a little bit more open for people to kind of come in and, and feel invited into that community, into that society. Um, and so uh, that was the that's kind of the reason that I, I started this program is to really allow everyone to feel like they are part of the paleo society or the paleo community because they really are and to get an idea of of who who the who the um, you know who's in that community and how to connect with them and you know get a sense of 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 that community and um, and it's been really amazing so far. Uh, 
the meetings that we've had, we've had two meetings so far, and it is incredible, the conversations and the questions that come up. Like, for example, we had somebody from South America who said that a master's degree in South America is con not considered a student. Like, you're not considered a student if you're in your master's. So she didn't actually even know you could. she could be applying for, for student awards or for student grants. Because in her in, in in the country she lives in, um, she's considered a professional, not a student. So even that kind of terminology, that kind of understanding, hearing other people's experiences and hearing um, he hearing that really opens up doors. Uh, so when we had the discussion, like, no, please apply for these things. Now she knows that all these things are open for her and that she does fall under that category. So. It, you know, even like conversations like that really, really go a long way. Yeah. I mean, and I'm just thinking like um, the community building is the really important part because I went to like 12 or 15 international meetings when I was in grad school, mostly in North America. And as you mentioned, like I was really connected to them because the faculty that I was working with have been going for, in some cases, 30 years. Their old students are there. So there is like this built in community that I totally took for granted because last year I went to the Geological Society of New Zealand meeting and I had such I'm honestly a very uncomfortable experience Not people were really kind that, you know, people were really willing to like reach out and like meet me while I was there and like talk to me about my poster. But I felt so adrift and like community -less, like because I didn't have this like built in network and it, it just takes time to build community if you're doing it from scratch. And I mean, and yeah, like I said, like even though people were really kind, I, I felt so uncomfortable and I really felt like I can't. I can't really do what I want here and I don't really want to be here. Whereas like when I go to meetings in the US, I'm like, this is going to be so fun. Like and um, so I'm really happy to hear like kind of how this is going. And like, yeah, I think especially when scientists are one expected to move countries <laughs> sometimes a lot and two, like, yeah, it's an international community um, and especially, you know, it's unfortunately often Western dominated, you know, and there's big silos in between, you know, um, Asian communities, South American communities, African communities, like, um, yeah, having cross-cultural things where we discuss these, like, s these small things, like what is a student that has like a huge impact? I'm just really, really happy to hear about that. Yeah, and for me, I am extremely fortunate in that my supervisor is amazing, my lab mates are amazing, so I feel very supported, and I feel very, um, yeah, I feel very supported, and I and I, I feel very stable in in my situation. But I realize that that is not everybody's experience. Some people don't have you know people or don't feel like they have people to bounce ideas off of um, or to kind of problem shoot with or you know they don't have a great relationship with their supervisors so things kind of feel unstable there um, so reaching out to the community and having that um, as as 
you know, as, as kind of your focus point or something that you can kind of go to as a huge resource. Um, there's a wealth of information within the community. And if you are linked with that community, you have a hundred people behind you rather than just kind of the one or two that you, you, you know, you have because you joined a certain lab. It's like creating, like, yeah, you're in the bachelor lab, you have a great community and you're like, well, I can extend this to people who may not have it independent of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'll be in your lab. Like, you know, I know that we're not directly in, in each other's lab, but I'll be in your, like, fictional kind of, you know, lab, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, I think you can create your own your own group. And and another thing that I'm really trying to move away from is this kind of clickiness that can kind of exist in, in science in general. And I'm not saying that um, people do it on purpose. They don't. Uh, you know, you just meet people and, and you meet people through your advisor, through other students that are in your lab group and through generational, you know, contacts and things like that. Um, so it's not on purpose, uh, but you kind of wind up, you kind of wake up one day and you're like, whoa, like how did I meet the people around me? And you figure out that it's because it all sources from one source, you know, and um, and so it can be kind of, um, ex you know, exclusive. Uh, and I'm really trying to kind of just move away from that and be like, we don't, we don't need that, you know, we can have a bigger community and we can kind of all benefit from communicating with one another and, um, and, and not partitioning out in, in these kind of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Okay, Amanda, well, that seems like a great place to leave it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope that we can continue these discussions. Yes, so exactly. Um, my other thing I was going to add is that um, hopefully we'll be hearing more from Amanda because she is hopefully going to be joining the Being Giants team. So we're really excited to have you. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.